So kind of an odd title, Surgical Jiu-Jitsu. The, the key of my talk, I think, is focusing on flexibility. Uh, the idea that if you make a mistake or, or don't know what to do or, or things change as you do surgery, that you have the, the kind of patience and, um, and skill to change as that change happens. These are my kids uh, demonstrating a quick arm bar maneuver. This is a daily thing in my house. So. Uh, so this is just a quick example of what I'm talking about. This is um, a Mohs case that we had a few years ago. And the repair is, is kind of crazy. I probably wouldn't do it this way if I did it tomorrow. But that's just kind of the point I'm trying to make is that there are no rules. Uh, once you're on the basic building blocks, there are very few rules. Anatomy is a key foundation of, uh, of everything we do. So it's important whether we're doing a biopsy, that we can find the, the biopsy location, that we're dictating on the phone where the spot is to, to the person treating, whatever it is, anatomy is key. I'm, I'm gonna go through these kind of quickly because I've got way too many slides, so I'm gonna skip just to the key points. Um, for example, the facial nerve, the temporal branch is very important. So here's a patient where this was transected, very common uh, with these lesions on the temple if it goes deep enough. Another patient, same thing with a large skin cancer, temporal nerve transected, and just showing basically at rest and in use what happens. There are a few things that ENT can do or, or plastics can do to fix this when it happens, but the main thing is just know that the nerve is there, know what it does, know how to avoid it, and in some cases you have to take it. Uh, another similar patient, this is called neuropraxia. This is a uh, basically tension on the marginal mandibular nerve. You can see her right upper mouth is basically uh, a little bit elevated, and it did heal in time. This is just from, from tension, just from too much tension and pressure in this area. I've only seen it a couple times, but just to show that real quick. Positioning surgical exposure is key. Um, this is important that your MAs get the, uh, the patient's uh, position correctly at first. As you guys all know, if you have a, whether it be a cyst or a skin cancer, the patient's not in a good position. Uh, if the skin cancer is on the neck, that's a very difficult area to position sometimes also. That can really add a lot of time uh, unnecessarily to your, to your uh, surgery. Anesthesia, there's two basic classes, Amons and Esters. Uh, the max dose is given there. I think most of y'all have probably seen this and know this anyway. Um, amids in general, if you have two eyes, it's an amid. If you have uh, one eye, it's an ester in general. There are a few tricks. If, you, if patients have allergies to lidocaine, uh, you can use Benadryl, you can use topical saline, or not, excuse me, uh, liquid saline. That's kind of a, not a very uh, great uh, alternative, but it can work. Again, these are things I think most of y'all already know anyway, so I'm just kind of skipping through it to make the point of just knowledge of what you uh, can uh, use. Instrument handling. This is really important to me as far as my MAs in surgery, that they know how to, how to correctly hand you the blade so the blade's not dropped on the floor and stabs you in the toe. That's points off that happens. Uh, when you use the knife, you know, do you use the right bevel? Is it, is it about a 45-degree angle? Uh, I've had questions before where if you do this at the end of a uh, excision where the... Uh, I guess the, the ends are, you, you have to be careful you don't make a little cross, a little X-hash there. So when I do the excision towards the end, I tend to go more to a 90 degree. But in general, that's the sharpest point of the blade. So that's, that's the correct angle there. In addition, um, you know, your, your MAs will hand you the suture. And how is that clamped onto the needle? Is it, is it uh, crimping the actual crimp on the, the needle? Or using too large of a needle driver for too small of a, of a, uh, a suture? or vice versa. If you use too small of a driver on a large suture, you're going to ruin your instruments. Uh, if you own your own instruments, you care a lot about that, so it's very important. 
Also, in general, it's a good idea to learn to palm your instruments. A lot of people will, use, will put your fingers into the actual uh, rings of the instruments. It's a lot faster and more efficient and more correct to do it this way, where uh, when, you, when you clamp it to release it, you push your, your thumb or thinar eminence against your fingers and it unclamps it it's very quick, very rapid. Uh, just to shows when you clamp it, I always see in the, in the main OR, the uh, scrub techs there, they, they love clamping the instruments to the third and final uh, ring. That's, that's not correct. That's going to ruin your instrument. So it's, it's correct to clamp to the first ring and only go to the second or third as the instruments wear and they expand, or they, they wear, I guess, get looser. This is showing, uh, it's not incorrect, but to me this is a less efficient way to do this. And there's, there's times when you still do this, but just in general, I think it's a good idea to learn to use the, uh, the thenar eminence in the fingers to, to do it that way, to palm your instruments. This is just demonstrating the clamping of the, of the instruments too, too much. It's just a little thing I saw at Hardy's, thought it was kind of funny, so anyway. Thanks for the courtesy laugh. <laughs> Bandaging is a huge part of our, uh, our office. Uh, this is a forehead flap, uh, but whether it's a forehead flap or whether it's a simple biopsy, you know, I've, I've had numerous patients that leave after a shave biopsy where the, the, the person didn't remember to put on a Band-Aid, and then we always apply a pressure bandage after that. That's very important. If the patient's on a blood thinner, you'll be getting a phone call later on. We use Ecofix as our primary, that's the, uh, that's the white bandage. It's very stretchy. It sticks to anything. It's great. That's the best thing in the world to me. We get it from McKesson. Uh, we sell it to our patients at cost because they usually need it if they're doing second intention wound care as well. Uh, this is Surgicel. So if you have patients that have either bleeding problems or you just can't get it to, to, to uh, be dry very well, this is a great way to, uh, to keep the wound dry. This, I use this instead of gel, uh, gel foam. So um, it's not cheap, but when you need it, it works great. We may do just the edges. The edges tend to be more of a problem than the deep uh, portion. Complications. Uh, this morning I got a phone call, actually not this patient, but this morning from somebody bleeding. And the, the point here is have a system in place. Every patient of mine has my cell phone. Um, if I can't, such as today, be there, um, I have either one of my nurses or MAs who can see the patient. I have complete trust in them that if there's a problem, they'll number one tell me, but number two, they can handle it without me there. So it's not ideal, but I think today's a good example of where you have to have a system in place. I think also telling patients ahead of time what to expect. This patient has a lot of bleed or bruising. That's pretty common, nothing to worry about. But still, if they don't know what's expected, they'll, they'll be worried about it. So second tent wound healing, uh, we, we use this quite a bit in our office, especially on leg lesions that are just too tense, too tight, too close. Um, you can imagine this is an anterior neck Mohs defect. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak just about Mohs. I'm trying to use these examples as just kind of the building blocks of what I do and how I change as, as things change. So most of my photographs are from Mohs cases, but that's just, that's just the photos that I happen to have, so ignore that. But point being, this would be a huge flap that I, I wouldn't do. I'd probably refer to plastics. But this healed very well. I don't have a post-op, but healed very well. Uh, the scalp is no exception, uh, whether you're doing Mohs or just an excision. The scalp can be, uh, second tent can be a great uh, tool for the scalp. So here's a patient who had a squamous cell, several layers of, of uh, Mohs down to periosteum in a couple areas, and just showing you after about two months what it can do to heal. Most patients we teach how to do the bandage care themselves, have a, a spouse or family member do this. Uh, in some cases, we'll do it for them. But you can do you know, pinwheel flaps. You can do some pretty, in my opinion, ridiculous flaps to close that. But this does very well, and there's almost no pain whatsoever from this. Uh, infection is always a, a, a patient concern. 
this is a rare, rare entity. In my opinion, uh, infection is basically from wound tension. If it's too tight, it's gonna get infected. If it's not tight, it's, it's pretty rare. If I'm going too fast or can't hear me, please tell me. This is a case I had last week. This is a leiomyosarcoma that um, on just below the uh, left knee, and this basically has a, a pigskin or porcine xenograft. Unfortunately, uh, Medicare won't cover that, but they're pretty cheap, so I tend just to do it when I need to. It takes you two seconds. You, st you store them in the freezer, thaw it for a few, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, you cut it to fit the wound, sew it in with either, either Vicarols or uh, a fast cut, and it's just a nice way of, of doing a little more than second attempt, but not quite doing a skin graft. And skin grafts are fine, too. Uh, this patient was, uh, was just not a good candidate surgically, so this, in my opinion, was a good option. Another option, uh, another case with a, a large Mohs defect down to tendon sheath, uh, obviously a difficult uh, case to close. Um, certainly you could do grafting as well, but that's a lot of uh, split thickness grafting. And to me, the split thickness grafts have a pretty nasty donor site healing process, so I like to do these quite a bit. And of course, you know I'm showing the, the big bad pictures, of course, since it's a meeting. Uh, I've got plenty of tiny ones, too. Um, this is a patient who had two melanomas. He had one here and one here. And we discussed different ways to treat this, but once again, you can see the result from second intention wound healing. It just does really nicely. So this is kind of my cue for the next slide, which is a base of a video that a, a patient who's a videographer made for me about his nose second intent healing. This is a Mohs defect that I thought, um, you know, I give him many options. First of all, I give him radiation options. I give him, we can do Mohs or do radiation. I don't want anybody to come back and think that Mohs is the only option out there. Um, I refer a lot of patients to uh, ENT and plastics for repairs. I, I refer for radiation, so I think it's important to give patients the options of everything. I, I, I do CNDs, excisions, uh, use topicals, the works. But here's uh, the wound healing in, and uh, it did pull on the uh, AILA a little bit, but it was acceptable, um, so it's just an option. So next slide. Um, this is an elderly patient who is in hospice. And this is a common thing that we see. We see old, older patients who are in hospice sometimes. Um, you know, they're not surgical candidates. They're in hospice, so why am I doing this? At the same time, as you can see, this is a huge tumor. This is not, in my opinion, okay to leave there, but this is always a kind of an ethical debate, too. What do you do? In this case, we did operate, I think, doing Mohs in the office. It's, it's very safe. It's not going to the OR, so um, his was down into muscle, but he did great. And my repair for this, again, was a, a pigskin xenograft. Uh, which gave him a, basically a painless, except for the muscle part, uh, a painless recovery. This is um, uh, a leg, basically just showing the after results of second intent. It's not perfect, but I think it's an option. When the wound is very tight and you can't close it, I think it's just good to, to see what that, what that could do. So Burr's triangles, uh, these are you know, important for daily excisions, for Mohs repairs, for everything. This is a patient who I saw actually Thursday um, who let me uh, use her, her photos for this presentation. In this case, and again, whether it's Mohs or just an excision, uh, in this patient, she had a circular defect. I put a single vicarol in the middle, so close it into, the, uh, into a line there. And then basically, I'm gonna show you kind of what I did there, which you guys know how to do Burr's uh, triangles. I'm using my forceps to lift the, uh, the triangle making this into basically a three-dimensional uh, cone. I'm next uh, incising one side. So I'm basically making this three-dimensional cone into a two-dimensional triangle. So you can see the triangle there. I'm next gonna pull the triangle over to one side, um, which I think shows better than the last picture. It just shows you the, the excess triangular uh, defect there. 
And once I pull it over, I'm, I'm going to simply excise that triangle. Now, obviously, if you pull the triangle too far, you can make the, uh, that, that too large, and that would be a problem. And then I'll do the same thing for the bottom. Another patient, this is uh, yesterday, so you can see my, my last minute PowerPoint changes. Um, a, single, a single suture in the middle makes the circular defect into a, a line. And I don't always do that, but that's just one way to do it. I then pull the, the dog ear or the standing cone up. Incise this, making a three-dimensional into a two-dimensional piece. Cut the triangle off, and there you go. So a different variant of Burroughs triangles. Uh, this is a patient who had a, a deep uh, basal cell going down to the, um, to the bone. She had, um, I had to fill the, uh, the gap with fats. We used a uh, fat hinge turnover flap, basically undermining this area, undermining the, the area to her uh, right cheek, flipping it over to here, and then using a, uh, a Burroughs triangle to, to slide that lateral cheek immediately. So basically the point is right here, it's hard, that's a Burroughs triangle there. It's a different way of doing it. This is basically a Burroughs advancement flap. But it's the same concept, just different vector. And that's her afterwards. So once again, same thing, using a Burroughs triangle right here to allow um, me to advance this flap this way, remedially. And this is just showing, you know, with every picture, with everything, um, there's, there's 10 things you can learn for, for me too. You've got the Burroughs triangle here, um, I'm using a mixture of simple uh, interrupted and running sutures, horizontal mattress for skin aversion, um, draping. You know, we, we never cover the nose or the mouth. People get claustrophobic. We do often cover the eyes. I think it makes them feel uh, more at peace. When things don't go as planned, you know, there's always an answer. That, that's part of my title as surgical jujitsu is there may not be an answer unless you know it, but there's, there's lots of things you can do as long as you're patient and, and, and uh, either think about it or ask questions. So we, we see a lot of nasal defects. This is one that's I mean, very difficult to repair. Um, the nasal lining is the issue. The outside's easy. It's the inside that's the problem. So I'll usually consult ENT or plastics for help doing this. Um, but sometimes the, the, the defects are so large that you can't do a nasal lining flap. So forehead flaps are great. You can, these will fix anything pretty much. So in this case, I actually use the forehead flap to, to hinge this part. I cut it long, and this part I hinge over itself to basically make this inside and outside. It's not as cosmetic, but it works very well. Documentation of photographs, I think it's very important to, number one, give patients options. You don't want to give a young cosmetic woman do Mohs on her, and then she finds out later that you could have done radiation. She won't be happy with you. She may still choose Mohs, but at least give her the option to choose that. Uh, this is a, a patient who let me make this little handout so I can show them what forehead flaps look like. So in this case, I can just tell patients, you'll have this on your nose for two weeks, it'll look kind of crazy, you'll think I'm cra crazy for doing this, but at the end it will do very nicely. So I try and have a book that I can show patients, you know, here's your four options to fix this, here's the two I recommend, which would you like to do? But if you don't have a picture, they can't really, they can't really tell what, what to do. And it may not be Mohs, it may be that you're doing an excision and you can say I'm going to do it this way or that way, but point being, um, I think it's important to give people options. So time, uh, we've got two PAs in our office now, we discuss this all the time, not, not to push them, but to be efficient. So how long does it take you to do an excision or, or a cyst or, or a skin cancer, whatever it is? What, what is your weakness? What are you afraid of? What do you, how can we make you better? And that includes every, all of us, myself included, of course. Uh, I never want you to rush, but work efficiently. Um, how fast are your MAs, your nurses? What are they doing uh, better that, could, that they could do to help you along better? Um, the anesthesia, is that painless for the, for the patient? Is it mixed, is it, is it buffered, et cetera, et cetera. 
And this is by no means meant to say we should go too fast, but just to, just to be efficient. So suturing techniques. There's lots of suture types, simple running, mattress, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I use a mixture of these, and I think there's, there's no rules. You use what works. A lot of times I'll be doing a suture, and I think it's uh, the best one. I'll do a, a vertical mattress, and it looks terrible. So I'll take it out and do a simple. So I think the, the key is just to always look and critique yourself and make it the best you can. I'm going to skip through these two kind of boring slides, but just showing that there's lots of absorbable and, and non-absorbable sutures. I tend to use mostly Vicryls. Uh, I think Vicryl brand, to me, is the best just because I see the less spitting with those sutures. I try different ones. Um, I use less expensive ones for my, my nylons, but a lot of folks prefer Maxon. It doesn't matter. Use what you like. Um, as far as needle placement when you're suturing, the ideal, y'all have all heard, when you do the uh, sutures for your vicarals or your, your deep sutures, you want to have that kind of uh, heart-shaped. So I think this is, this is not wrong. This is not great. This is showing that the suture could be put, could be put in in this manner to where you can imagine the top part will resemble a heart, the top of a heart more than the, the previous suture will. So that alone will give you great wound aversion. If you do that, you can probably just do simpler running sutures without having to, to evert with the uh, cutaneous sutures. Of course, I can see I'm holding my suture wrong here. That's great. Just realize that. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> um, this is huge for me. I was kind of a Boy Scout, I guess forever Boy Scout, so I, I like knots. But this is the right way to, t to tie a suture. This is, the, this is a, a true square knot, kind of. It. You actually, since you have three, it's not a true square knot. But anyway, moving past that. The point, though, is you want to have alternating. Um, I, I alternate my hands when I do it. So I go left, right, left, right, and that allows the sutures to lie flat. The wrong way is if you do this. Now, if I, if I reverse my hands here, that will straighten out and become a square knot. But will the knot still work? Probably so. It's just a matter of how correct you want to be. But to me, that's a, an important thing. And just showing an example of the, uh, the, the square knot lying flat. So as far as uh, excisions, um, tension is kind of my enemy, so in my office at least. When I was a resident, we did 3-0 Vicryl at the heaviest, and we would always do uh, you know, nylon sutures. That's fine. Uh, now I use 2-0 Vicryls. They work great for the back. Um, I use staples when needed. If it's you know, a cosmetic uh, patient, I may not use staples. But if I can, it's appropriate. They heal very nicely. Um, more importantly, I like doing multiple layers of Vicryl. So in this patient, I put in a, uh, a deep suture. I probably put in two Vicryls, two or three, whatever you want, just to kind of get the bulk of the wound closing. And again, this is common sense. Most of you will do this anyway, but just this is kind of how I do it. So after that, I'll put in my normal Vicryls to approximate. And this actually shows kind of right and wrong, not intentionally, but down at the bottom part, the, um, the sutures were, were well-placed. At the top, I think I have too much space between my, my vicryl suture and the cutaneous surface, which means that the skin itself is pulling, but the, but the, uh, the skin surface is, has a small gap there, which is shown right there. So it's not enough to matter, but the point is, that's a common question is, you know, how, why are my edges not approximating perfectly? And that's usually because you're, you're too far from the, from the uh, surface. But the art is, is getting it far, close enough, but not but getting your, your uh, lower level to where you don't get spitting sutures and then uh, just a, a basic running repair. And when I do my running repairs, I, I will oftentimes put a simple single in the middle just in case it were to break, just to release some tension off of that as well. Um, bandaging is huge. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than having a patient bleeding from a shave biopsy or a punch biopsy. That should never happen. And that's usually from your, your medical assistant not doing their part. 
But bandaging, we use the EcoFix again, so I'll do Vaseline um, or polysporin, base tracing, whatever you want to use. We use Vaseline, works just as well. Uh, we use uh, usually telephonostic dressing. We use a, a pressure bandage of gauze. And then I use um, multiple layers of EcoFix, which is the tape I showed earlier. Um, so just a couple more back to suturing techniques. This is just a kind of standard Mohs defect. This was really nice for me because it was right in that, that crease. It makes it easy. But with some vertical mattress uh, sutures, it just shows a, a nice uh, result there. And there, you can probably do whatever you want. It wouldn't matter. It's just such a great place to work. I'll still take credit, of course. Um, another uh, defect, just showing uh, the use of and this is kind of early in my career when I was really trying things out, which I encourage you to do. Try vertical mattress, try horizontal. You'll, you'll have your own likes and dislikes. But this patient, I had the, the running horizontal mattress at the bottom, and I had the uh, uh, running at top, and um, actually simple at top, and just, um, you know, they, they both work very well. So you, you use what, what you like the best as well. So um, on, the, on the arms, I tend to do more aversion than other places. This is a just a basal cell, nothing too fancy, um, but I'm just using um, horizontal and horizontal mattress uh, sutures, and it's pretty, it, this is pretty dramatic aversion, but once the arm heals, I think it, it, it does pretty nicely. So I would do avert much more in the forearm than I would somewhere else. Um, another patient just showing um, a modest defect on the forehead, so I'm going to close it kind of within some uh, boundary lines, some cosmetic subunits to try to hide the scar. We did a... Uh, advancement flap, a burrows advancement flap, using that lateral uh, forehead. But, but the point here is the use of the right sutures will help hide the scar the best. The scars can be there no matter who does it. The key is, to, is how you can hide it the best. And once again, just showing the forehead flap, showing the forehead uh, heals nicely with the use of uh, usually vertical mattress uh, sutures. And just again, um, pretty standard forehead flap, forward repair with the vertical mattress sutures, and they are the same thing. And just of note, the, the forehead top usually heals by second intent if it's too tight to close, and you really can't see them once, it, once they're done. I think the more talks I do, I have to do more notes because I keep forgetting to, I guess as I get older and older, I forget my, my talks. But anyway, this is a reminder to me to, to do sharp angles. Uh, everybody has their own personal preferences. I don't like bilateral flaps. I like, um, I like rigid, sharp, angular uh, repairs. To me, if you have... Um, repairs that have lots of curves to it, you tend to have uh, more pincushioning. So it's kind of backwards from what I learned in residency, because you're always taught the body has natural curves and, and, uh, and smooth transitions. But I like to do things very abruptly. I think you have less chance of, of a pincushioning. And just once again showing the, um, the sharp angles that I like to do. So cutting sutures. This is another uh, big sticking point in my office. Uh, if, if your assistants don't cut the sutures the way they should, you'll have guaranteed uh, spitting sutures, which is really a pain. So what I tell my staff is to, as you can kind of visualize your own sutures, to hold the sutures such that the, the pointed end of the scissors is on the bottom part. And that shows that the screw will be on the opposite side. So if the screw is up, you screw it up. That's what I tell my staff. If the screw's down, that's correct. But by doing that, um, they can ensure that the blade is at the the smallest point to keep the smallest spitting suit, the smallest tail as possible. The other thing, as I tell them, is if, if you can imagine this bottom blade being basically a, a long triangle, um, if you cut at the very tip, you'll have the smallest tail possible. If you cut too high, the tip is, the, the tail is going to be as long as that length, as that width of the suture, excuse me. If you cut too high, 
the tail length will be as long as this uh, sitter's blade is, if that makes any sense. Point being, use the tips to cut. The problem there, though, is as you cut 3.0 or 4.0 vicrolls, your sutures will, will your state, ah, I can't talk, your scissors, too many S's, uh, your scissors will dull very quickly. So once again, just a couple of pictures showing the, um, the scissors in place with the very, very distal tip doing the cutting. And two, as your scissors dull and these are tough to cut or using heavier vicrolls, the more tension you pull on that, that will make your, your assistant's job a lot easier to cut that suture. Um, so excisions, you guys all know this, the standard is the 3 to 1 length to uh, width ratio, which gives you 30, 30 degrees or less for angles. That's kind of the goal. Uh, tension, in my opinion, is key. Lack of tension. Um, in this case, you know, I'll often have patients raise or lower their arms, move their body parts. Let me see where the, the, line ten, the, the tension lines should be. So I may give you a different answer based on, on where the, uh, the, the spot is on different patients. So I've already mentioned once before, if you run the sutures, consider a, uh, adding a simple suture for backup, just in case, especially for shoulders and back. Also, know your depth of excision. Uh, I like to always um, emphasize that you should have a very even uh, resection layer. So make sure that your, your resection is not kind of up and down. It's pretty clean across where you're going, where you intend to go. Um, use your instruments. If you have bleeding, uh, cautery is great, but you may need to use more than just cautery, so be sure to use your mosquito hemostats and bicurls and tie it if, you, if needed. And just, just focus on the even plane of resection once again. So going over some uh, MS, MS and Z plasties, um, that to me is a common question, is when do you use these? And there's no rules, of course. We saw a fox in our front yard, so I had to add that in there. So S plasty, the hardest thing to me about an S-plasty is drawing it. So I always tell people to, if this is your, your defect, draw your, the middle line first, and then after that, connect the, the top, the sides, and the bottom to give you a, a perfect S. It's hard to draw an S-plasty without that, in my opinion. Uh, just This is a melanoma excision, just kind of the same thing, showing the middle line with the S drawn around it. Same thing. This patient had a, an older pacemaker, so we're using bipolar cautery right here. But just showing the, um, the uh, S formation there. I guess just showing, too, when I'm doing my excisions, I tend to raise the angle a little bit on the ends just to avoid having the cross-hatching at the ends. But this is just showing the S-plasty once again. I think this is a lipoma. So uh, getting to the M-plasties, the tip stitch is a great little stitch that's used. I'm sure you all have seen it before. You basically enter right here, go horizontally through the, the tip of the, uh, the, the skin there, and then back out. The key of this is having the level of um, the needle going in here and here at the same uh, depth. That will allow it to be nice and flat on the outside. And then the emplasty, the, the purpose in my use of the emplasty is to make your excision shorter. So you may be at a, at a margin like a, a lip or an eyelid or a shoulder or somewhere where you, where you can't, you don't have room to have this excision go longer, so we'll use the emplasty to make it shorter. Uh, there's an example where I, I could certainly make it longer down uh, towards the chin, but in this case I decided not to. Uh, it also, in my opinion, shares the, uh, the tension vector. So especially on the shoulder, uh, there's a... Uh, you can use the emplasty to direct the vectors not just one way, but two or three ways. And I think it's important, too, if you look at these flaps, there's lots of names for flaps that mean the same thing. I mean, an emplasty is essentially the same thing as a Mercedes flap. It's just not as long. 
just like a double uh, rhombic is basically a bilid. There's lots of things that are the same thing if you look at it from a different angle. And this just shows basically the, uh, the tip stitch once again. All right. Um, once again, another emplasty, just showing that I'm using this to not extend the cut down towards or past the chin. This is a, the left lateral neck. So uh, in this case, uh, I'm using an emplasty to um, make this end a little bit shorter. And the neck is nice, too, because these lines, you can imagine the, the normal tension lines uh, go different ways. So you can hide both sides uh, nicely. I'm going to use the emplasty in more cosmetic areas just because of you adding a second uh, aberrant scar there. But there's on the face, there's an emplasty just to avoid this going longer. This is the uh, shoulder. <clears throat> so in this case, I'm using the emplasty to just basically divert my tension vectors. If I go just up and down, then the tension just is going left and right. So I use the emplasty here to basically add just different tension vectors so it makes the tension overall uh, less uh, in one direction. Um, not as pretty as it could be, but this is, these are using staples for very tense areas. So obviously you can be careful where you use staples because they're not in general as cosmetic, but they can have a great purpose. Uh, it, it beats dehiscence. So if you've got a, a tight cyst on the back, that, that can be a good way to go. This is a large basal cell on the uh, left buttock. Um, this is a long time ago for me, but I would probably use staples now if I did this just because that's a lot of tension. Basically, an A to T is essentially an emplasty. If you, if you think about it, these, this angle is just different. You've gone from... You go from an emplasty angle with you know, 60 degrees roughly to basically more 90, but it's essentially the same thing. So I guess my point there is the building blocks are, are the same. Once you learn these basic building blocks, you learn you know, how to do a tip stitch, an emplasty, an S-plasty. At some point, it, it kind of becomes one big jumble. So um, <clears throat> I've kind of mentioned the anatomy. Um, I think confidence is key, not, not being conceited, but being you know, humbly confident. Um, Patients need that, too. They don't want to walk in and have, have somebody feel kind of uneasy about what they're doing. So trust your gut. Unless you don't know where you're wrong, then don't trust your gut, I guess. Um, always ask when needed. Uh, never avoid a biopsy due to anxiety of the area. For example, eyelids. I don't mean don't do it. Uh, or I also don't mean don't do it uncomfortably. I mean just ask for help. So I see a lot of uh, skin cancers on eyelids, very difficult places to biopsy. Uh, if you don't do them quite a bit, they're kind of awkward. So... Nails are the same way. Nails can be very difficult in awkward biopsies as well. We all have transplant patients. You guys all know this. There are you know, lots of just little factoids here. They're basically higher skin cancers in transplant patients. We use a lot of seriotane for these. Um, I use Accutane for more basal cells. I use seriotane more for squamous cells. But this is a pretty well-known uh, fact there as far as seriotane. Um, sterile technique is huge. Um, I'm kind of a germ-phobe, and having two kids has changed that a little bit. So anyway... You know, not just yourself, but make sure that your staff, I mean, you're, you're only as strong as your weakest point. So if, you're, if one of your assistants, I, I love having new employees who will put on sterile gloves and then go open the cabinet for sterile gloves. It drives me crazy. But you guys, I'm sure, have all seen the same thing. Um, as far as cleansers, you know, we use uh, betadine as our standard. Um, I do use uh, Fizahex and uh, HibiCleanse as needed, but just make sure that you understand the uh, toxicities and contraindications when those are not to be used. Uh, prophylaxis, I was looking at this this morning to make sure I had the updated um, information for you, but this is from a book I wrote a while back, a little bit uh, dated, but the, the point is, the bottom line, in general, is not recommended. Now, I've got patients who come in who have, um, you know, the dentist gives them amoxicillin, or they've got a heart valve, and they always get it. I tend to give it to them anyway, because I don't want to be the, the person who kind of broke the rule in their mind, so I probably use it more than I should, but in general, the, the AHA guidelines show that we should not be using much 
if any, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, and really, amoxicillin is not the right choice. If you do it, that's more for dental, for oral procedures. Um, in my office, Keflex is the, uh, the first choice. I crossed out uh, ZPAC just because we, I don't use that much anymore because of the recent uh, cardiac risks. I know that's probably debatable. A lot of folks still use it. To me, it's not worth the liability, so I don't use it. Uh, but we use basically Keflex as a first choice. I use clindamycin as a second choice. Um, not very common, and it's maybe it's to make myself feel better than the patient, but that's what I do. So um, we have these systems in our office. I'm sure lots of y'all have a, have a similar uh, type, type of system. If I hit it once, it basically beeps once. It means I need a suture, I need assistance, second pair of hands, whatever. If I beep it a second time, it flashes, and that, that means I need help. Someone's having a heart attack, we have a problem, something uh, urgent. So that's been good for us. Um, we also use suction for everything we do with electric cautery. Smoking's bad for you, so why should inhaling uh, C&D smoke or, or cautery smoke be good for you? So I, I basically use this for everything where I'm boving or cauterizing. Um, it makes it, imagine if this patient, this patient's inhaling this there, it's just miserable. So the patients like it, we like it. I think it's a lot safer. Um, electrosurgery, not going to go to it very much, but just, I think, know the differences. Um, the main things we use are electrocoagulation, uh, which is the, the true term. That's basically your, um, I'm, I'm sorry, electrodesiccation is your, your monotermal where you've got a bovie with no grounding pad. Um, we use the bioterminal forceps if they have a pacemaker. We use uh, electrocautery, just a heat pen if they have a, a defibrillator also. That's hard to use, not very efficient, uh, but can, can work. Um, we do have a harmonic scalp- scalpel, which is kind of... Um, ridiculous to have, but it's, a, it's an option to use a basically a heated blade to cauterize or sear bleeding tissue as well. But point being, ask the patient if they have a pacemaker or defibrillator, know that what they have and don't have so you don't set things off. That's points off. Um, also, um, patient saw last week, I, he let me take his photograph, these uh, extra uh, cochlear implants. You can really destroy these things if you're not careful. So if you use cautery, um, don't know much about it, but there's a chance apparently that you can hurt the device by using uh, coagulation around these. So in my office, uh, those who have worked with me uh, now or in the past will know that I'm very big on biopsy locations. I don't take really photos of biopsies. I take measurements. I do X, Y coordinates. So it may be that the, the biopsy is, you know, three centimeters above and two medial to the right medial canthus or eyebrow. And that way I can pinpoint where it is. Nothing worse than having a patient there for surgery wherever it might be and you can't find it, especially if it's a melanoma. That's, that's a, a real problem, I think. Um, also, for our EMR systems, it doesn't require you know, much as far as um, uh, data storage. There's no photographs. We do take before and afters of all of our surgeries, but not, not all of our biopsies. So nail surgery, uh, there's many ways to do this, lots of opinions. Um, mine's right, but I'm just kidding. I use plain lidocaine, no epinephrine, uh, no tourniquet. It's not an issue for me as far as bleeding, so that's why I don't do that. Um, in most cases, I try to, if I remove the nail, I try to remove just part of the nail. Uh, the, nail is, the nail protects the nail bed, so it's very painful not to have it. So I'll often use um, just a, a partial avulsion there. So these patients, you know, very simple. I'm going to use a freer elevator to basically um, drive in here to separate the nail from the nail bed. I'm then going to use the, uh, the nail clippers to separate where I need to. And then as long as you separate over here as well, hemostats just twist it out. It takes you know, a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> Melanonychia, uh, when it's darker or new, certainly want to check it. So this is a patient who um, I didn't remove the nail plate at all. I felt like it was probably behind the uh, nail in the proximal nail fold. In this case, I did a little, a small little flap just to pull this back and uh, remove the, uh, in this case, just the nevus wasn't anything bad, but you can't be sure. 
you can see the flap there, just where it goes back with, with a few nylons. Another patient, I don't have the before, unfortunately, but she had melanonychia um, on her uh, nail and pulled back and there's a melanoma. So took it out, that was, uh, she lost her finger for that one, so um, doing fine, but point being, be sure to check them when, when you need to. So the next part is just kind of a hodgepodge of, to me, interesting cases, uh, some medical, some surgical, um, but still the same theme as what, what do you do. This is a patient with a melanoma. Uh, obviously, it's metastatic locally. You know, you do, um, you, you consult people for this one. You don't do it by yourself. This is probably not surgical. He had mets as far as his forehead. So he's got, a, obviously, a problem. But we, uh, you, know, get, you get medical oncology involved for him. This is the patient I showed earlier who is sitting down. Um, we do a lot of patients who are elderly who can't get on the table. And I think that would be a, very, a, a big fall risk also. So a lot of times, uh, your, your positioning of patients is, is hard to do because of their, their abilities. So um, this is a patient who we're seeing more and more of. She has something we call reactive keratoacanthomas, reactive KAs. So you do Mohs on it, you do an excision on it, you do a C&D, you radiate, whatever, it doesn't matter, they come back. And it's really a problem. So for these patients, I use injectable 5-FU. Um, works very well. <clears throat> I found nothing that works better than that, to be honest. Um, so you can inject... Uh, basically, just the straight uh, concentration into each one of these. It might, you might be injecting you know, 0.1, uh, 0.2, not, not a whole lot. I'll see them back every two to three weeks and keep doing it until it goes away. And it's kind of unnerving because these are squames, basically. So you, know, you hate to not get a clean margin, but you basically can't get a margin if that's what it is. And some patients won't believe you. They'll, they'll leave you because they think that, you're, um, you know, that you had a recurrence on your Mohs or a recurrence on your excision, so that can be very difficult as well. <clears throat> this patient um, has Gorlin syndrome, so she has the frontal bossing, she had palmar pits, she had multiple jaw cysts, she had um, multiple basal cells, almost forgot that part. So we've done you know, MOS for her many times. Um, I even did fractional CO2, did Fraxel on her, uh, had no charge to her, just to try it, it worked great for her. It's kind of a, an odd thing to do, but it worked pretty well. So now, uh, based on the last lecture, we used uh, Aravidge. So that's worked out very well for her. Um, she did have side effects. She had the nausea, muscle spasms. Um, she's actually my first patient putting that on that. So I have no problem using it, but it's also expensive. So I think it has, you know, has a place for sure. A lot of folks think that the most surgeons won't use Aravich because we, I don't know, like to cut only, I guess, but I think it's a great medication. So, but that's a challenge. This is a patient who has, um, it's not a cancer, it's trigeminal trophic syndrome. So she had some kind of a, neurologic defect or surgery um, in the past, and that basically causes this uh, sense of bugus crawling or formication or whatnot, just nerve irritation. So she basically, this is all from her picking, but it's almost always in this area. And, you know, of course we do biopsies. You do a biopsy and rule it out, and you do probably a couple biopsies and rule it out, but that's trigeminal trophic syndrome. So once we, once I told her that, we had it documented, she, you know, a year went by later on, so, um, she was referred back to me by NT to do a forehead flap to repair it, and we, I didn't do it because I was afraid she would just keep doing the same thing. Why, why cut her forehead and do a flap when she's going to do the exact same thing once again? Um, love the challenge of doing that, but to me it wouldn't work for her. Now, she's better now. She's healed quite a bit just from not picking at it. Um, squamous cells can be obviously very invasive and, and uh, dangerous. That's a pretty obvious tumor, but point being, it just went down to parotid. So the key here is just know that you've got other, other colleagues to help you. ENT, if you need a parotidectomy, um, you know, I don't know what ENT does exactly, but point being, know that they're out there, know that if you need help, 
know to ask for. And just showing here that we used, um, I used that Burroughs advancement flap, probably my favorite flap, just to pull that in. Just gives you more, more uh, flexibility from the back there. So again, lots of elderly patients. Uh, um, I'm not sure why they don't do this earlier, but huge squamous cell. Uh, risk of METs is you know, there. It wasn't a problem in her case, but it's always a risk. So up and down into and through muscle. Difficult repair, but this is a Burroughs uh, graft. Basically cut the triangles like an excision. Um, never, throw your, never throw your scraps away. You might have a, a leg lesion that's too tight, so you can use the scraps as a Burroughs graft. Not always the prettiest way to do it, but sometimes you just do it works. Um, like I was mentioning, know your colleagues. This is a case that had a large squamous cell on the, the bottom of the foot. So we do this joint with, uh, with orthopedics. I don't know that like they do, so I'm going to ask for help. I've had patients where we involve neurosurgery, plastics, ENT, uh, everybody. So it's, it's really makes it kind of fun to have the different colleagues as well. Uh, another just large scalp lesion. So this is a patient who had a, a large melanoma on the lower lip. And um, this is three or four stages of Mohs to get it clear. And there is no great way to fix this. I, I had probably 10 different PowerPoint things I'd drawn out for myself to kind of think about what happens here or there or there. But I think the key is just, just having lots of plans and backup plans. My, once I started doing this, it was a pretty simple repair. But the point is just have lots of options. And not, she did pretty well. It's, it's a little bit of a tight lip there. But I think considering the options you have there, it's, uh, it's functional. So we see a lot of keloids, uh, whether I cause them or somebody else causes them. I use a C2 laser for a lot of this. Uh, nothing's great for it, but always ask your patients before you excise something, especially cosmetic, do you keloid? A study I did, we actually published in pediatrics a while back too, is that if you um, ask patients who keloid, most patients, especially in the earlobes, this is just earlobes, if you keloid, uh, you'll probably do it uh, after age 11. So I'll see women who have two piercings on their ears, I'll freak them out because I'll say, okay, this, this ear piercing, you were a baby, and this one up here, you were 14, I'm guessing. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. So point being, if you're an infant, you probably will not keloid. For some reason, when you're either pregnant or you are uh, a teenager, that's when keloids uh, tend to happen more often. <clears throat> I don't have a science behind that, but that's just from a, a, survey, a survey I did as a resident that showed that. So just showing again, I'll do a, a mixture of debulking with a 10 blade and using the CO2 laser to help treat that keloid. Uh, once again, our elderly patients with these large squamous cells, uh, this is a matter of weeks, went from that to that. And, you, you know, you can't treat that surgically. We had planned to, but he came in with this, and we just we couldn't do that. Um, even radiation, we did radiate, but the, the problem for me is the patients who I want to radiate, they can't get there very well, or the family won't take them. So it's really difficult. I, I want to go to radiation, but they won't do it. So, And they think that this will be a simple, just cut it out, you're done today. Well, that's going to be weeks of wound care. So there's really no great option for this. But I also have a lot of patients where they come in, and, and everyone's refused them, so I can't, I can't say no to them. So I still do something for them. Um, this patient came in last week. Well, I, one of my PAs saw him. Same problem. He's in hospice. He's doing very poorly. Uh, when you come in, he, he raises his blanket up to cover the things. So he can't see it. He's just a terrible patient as far as, you know, he's, he's fighting you the whole time. So it's a very difficult patient. But I also feel like I can't leave that just sit there and grow. So it's really, really difficult. Uh, another large lip lesion, common for you know, farmers, especially in Georgia, I guess. Uh, on the bottom lip, large squame. He's got a high risk of metastases, so imaging studies are, are uh, important. Um, Dentition is terrible as well, so that makes a, a problem for radiation. So you're going to consult your radiation oncologist first to make sure that the teeth are taken care of, if need be, ahead of time. 
these are his good teeth that are left after the bad ones were pulled, by the way. Um, that's the final defect, obviously a difficult uh, lesion to repair. And we did what's called a, a, a Bernard Webster flap, where basically this is a, a temporary pigskin graft just to buy me time until we fix this. But we basically are going to, by using Burr's triangles, uh, push this lateral edge of the mouth here and that the left side in together, then pull it from the mucosa in from the outside, out from the inside to make a lip. So it looks like the predator kind of the, from that movie. But this is showing that the, um, the tissue, you can see probably here better, the tissue comes from the outside going in. And, you know, it's not the perfect fit there, but later on we did a, uh, an Abbey lip switch to fix that, and it's, it's reasonable. So, um, again, just showing the CO2 laser to uh, resurface some grafting. This patient came in for this uh, lesion on his left cheek right here, and we, we noticed um, this as well. So it's a large squamous cell. We see it quite a bit. Um, Again, this will heal by itself just fine. So this was my first patient in Columbus, and she had a melanoma in situ. And I can't stress enough, if you're worried about it, biopsy it, because we, sometimes they don't look like they, sh like they should. This melanoma is very faint, had been there for a long time. After many stages, that was, again, my first patient. I thought, where have I moved? This is craziness. Um, but she's doing great still. Um, and this is uh, just another patient just, you just showing the forward flap with a, uh, a cartilage graft to, to give you a structure. Um, again, this is kind of my, my hodgepodge oddities part of the, of the slideshow, so it's just more for fun. Hopefully you guys don't mind. But this is a malignant nodular hydradenoma. So, you know, you think it's probably a cyst. You do a biopsy. Hopefully it goes to derm path only um, because this, you know, that's not a common diagnosis. Um, and whether you do Mohs or excise, I don't think it really matters. Not, not a big deal to treat it. But the point being, it's just getting the right diagnosis is the key. So again, just showing a poor scene xenograph to fix that. Um, just showing a melanoma on the foot. Pretty classic area, especially in an African-American patient. Um, this is my first skin graft to fail, and that's because he came in walking on it with no crutches. So not, not ideal. But anyway, just a skin graft on that. Um, this is a patient that when I was in Macon, one of my PAs uh, there had this patient and said, come look at this, this thing. It looks kind of weird to me. And you know, your, your first thought is you know, maybe a cyst, maybe not. But this is a large angiosarcoma. So again, point being, if you're not sure, just biopsy everything, it, it, you never know. And this just shows the, uh, the involvement it was huge. And we had her um, on Avastin, kind of, at the time, it was kind of a unique uh, trial, but we actually had life flight fly her to Northwestern probably twice uh, every two weeks. And she did pretty well for probably two or three years. Another large squamous cell in the right cheek. Uh, the point here is that was your clinical margin, that's your powerful margin, and then that was fixed to bone. So that's usually a bad sign, obviously. Um, very aggressive, poorly differentiated, poorly differentiated tumor on the cheek. Um, that was a defect. And again, there's no one way to fix this. There's lots of ways to fix it. In this case, I did a Burroughs graft from the, the base, basically cut a wedge out here, use that, your scraps as your uh, skin graft. And that was the final. But more importantly, I left, left the, uh, he lost his temporal branch of his nerve as well, obviously. So eyelids, um, it's not really hard to biopsy these, but what I do is I basically will take a, um, you know, tell the patient what we're gonna do. I'll use a one, a one cc syringe, this lure lock, because if you imagine if you have any kind of pressure on a non-lure lock, it can uh, break off. And it's just really upsetting for the patient to get sprayed in the eye with lidocaine. So I basically use force, and always when you inject, inject in a way that if they were to jerk away from you or towards you, you're not gonna stab them in the eyeball. This also points off. Um, but I use some Bishop forceps, 
pull that away from me, uh, use some uh, spring scissors, and take a small thin shave or, or, or a cut there. Again, just showing kind of what we do with that. We put in eye shields for protection and uh, take the Mohs margin. And this is um, just kind of my last slide showing just a very large one. And this is a patient where obviously this is not for me alone. I had oculoplastics come off, we did it together. Um, I've got a patient now who has a, a DFSP on the vulva. I've got Gynoc working with me on that. So just really, you know, it's nice to use people who know more than, than I do about those areas. So there's my kids. Thank you for your, for your patience and time and appreciate it very much. Any, any questions? Only easy ones, please, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Dangerous question. It is excellent. Uh, it really is. Uh, we, we do very different things. My wife is more medical, so uh, I'm more surgical. Uh, we work on different sides of our office, so it's, uh, it's good. That, that's actually a very common question I get. <laughs> Dangerous question. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. The question is basically after keywords, what do you do? And the answer to me is everything. I, I, I always tell patients we can do you know, topical steroids, we can injectable steroids, we can do silicon gel sheeting, we can do uh, compression for, for earrings, we can do CO2 laser. Um, so if I do CO2, I'll usually just debulk it surgically. Uh, I'll then do CO2. The CO2 for, has, for some reason has some um, properties that make this, the, the keywords less likely to come back. We don't know why. And then I'll often do either Aldera or, or steroids injectable after that. Yes? So I give it to them usually 30 minutes ahead of surgery. So usually we have everything there. So if the patient comes in, I've got it all in my office. I, I give it to them myself. Um, so to me, it's always one dose about 30 to 60 minutes before surgery. And then, you know, if, if, I, if it's like a long Mohs case or a, a tight lesion that I might want to afterwards, I'm going to give them a week, a week of Keflex afterwards as well. Usually the, the true prophylaxis is just before. All right, well, thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.